My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. And on behalf of Joanne Tolkoff, producer of the College Commons, HUC's online learning platform, I would like to welcome you all to a special production of the Bully Pulpit podcast, a musical interview with leading Jewish musician Dan Nichols. For the scrape and the pull of the nail on the string The wish for something better a heavy sigh brings For a cracked wooden box roaring galaxies Fingertip secrets, calluses set free. For the call and response of the hope I hear. Thanks and the trust in a God I don't fear. For my relief in a holy one of blessing. And my belief in a lifetime of wrestling. This is why I sing. This is why I sing. All I have I bring. This is why I sing. For the flesh and the blood of a body built to feel The daily desire to know something real For the quiet of twilight, the raw winter air riot of thunder your hand in my hair for whispers and screams and the joys of release days and the dreams in a home I know peace for the love from someone who knows enough to leave gift of a life that gives more than I need. This is why I sing. This is why I sing. All I have I bring. This is why I sing. For the sun and the moon and the shadow I cast For all my tomorrows and yesterday's past For the rhythm of heartbeat that means I belong The touch of a feather, the silence in song This 
This is why I sing. This is why I sing. All I have I bring. This is why I sing. This is why I sing. This is why I sing. All I have I bring. This is why I sing. Dan Nichols. Thank you so much. Tonight would not have been possible without the help and support from many people whom I'd like to name. Our friends and colleagues at the URJ have welcomed us with open arms, and we have relied particularly heavily on Isaac Newell for his expertise, flexibility, and generosity at every turn. The College Commons itself and all its programming is possible only because of the unstinting institutional support under the leadership of our president, Rabbi Aaron Pankin, because of the financial support of the Martin Cohen Fund, administered by Vice President for Program and Business Development, Liz Squadron, and because of the creative leadership of our producer, Joanne Tolkoff. Finally, we owe tonight's concept to our colleague and friend, Rabbi Adam Allenberg, who is the Assistant Director of Recruitment and Admissions on the HUC Skirball campus. We're in for a great treat tonight. Some music and conversation with one of Jewish music's great personalities and talents. Dan is a singular talent in the world of Jewish music. He is one of the most dynamic, influential, and beloved Jewish musicians in North America. His melodies have become an integral part of the spiritual and liturgical experience of countless individuals and communities throughout North America and beyond. And, in fact, Dan is a product of the Jewish camping movement. After Dan and his entire family converted to Judaism when Dan was seven years old, he spent 10 summers at the Goldman Union Camp in Zionsville, Indiana, before receiving his degree in vocal performance at the University of North Carolina. In 1995, Dan established the Jewish rock band 18. Since that time, Dan and 18 have released 11 full-length studio albums, each one of which has received critical acclaim and has been celebrated by Jewish adults and youth alike. Please welcome Dan Nichols. Dan, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. One of the things I learned about you, which I didn't know beforehand, although I suppose I could have figured it out, was uh, just how often you're on the road. That's a whole theme in, in music, popular and otherwise. We hear musicians singing about it all the time, but it's very, very difficult for those of us who aren't traveling musicians to grasp the, the challenges, the opportunities. And, and so I wanted to ask you, simply out of curiosity on my part, what surprises you most on the road? What's happened to you that has taken you aback and perhaps colored your entire experience of this unique musician thing, which is being on the road? <laughs> I'm, well, the first thing that I think of is not um, very profound, but I'm just thinking about the Delta Sky Club just three days ago <laughs> in San Francisco, and I was going to the bathroom. It happened to be number one, and I came around, came around the corner, 
And there's a woman, a Delta Sky Club employee, who's mopping and cleaning and opening doors to stalls and attending, <laughs> to, the, attending to the bathroom. And that was a surprise, no doubt. As I'm zipping up and washing my hands, there's I'm in the bathroom <laughs> with a woman. It made me highly uncomfortable. So that was, that was surprising. You sound like someone who's never done the opposite and walked into the ladies' room. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, though, on a more serious end, I do travel a lot, and I am fortunate. I wonder, you know, if some of the mystique of so many songwriters writing about the road is is born out of um, a sense of isolation or loneliness that comes from being a stranger in a strange land. And I, I have the opposite of that. After 20 years, I'm visiting. I would say probably 90 percent. Maybe that's maybe yeah. 90 percent of my work is repeat business. So I'm visiting communities again and again over 20 years. So there are many locations around this country that feel like home. Wow. So I don't feel isolated. So 90% of your time are places you've been. Yeah, I would say that's... That's, that's outstanding. That's yeah. a, that speaks it's to... It's a you. blessing. It's a real blessing. I do remember, though, something that has surprised me in the work over the last 20 years, and that is, um, why is it that in one community I'll try something and it'll work really well, and I think I'm doing very similar work the next community, and it really doesn't work. It really is clear that it doesn't work. And a few years ago, right before high holiday services, I was working at Noah Kushner's emerging community called The Kitchen in San Francisco. And her father, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, was in the congregation. And I saw him, and I gave him a big hug. And he said, how are you, Danny? And I said, I'm good, and I'm really fascinated about what we're doing. The more I do it, the more questions I have about what it means to do right. And then he said, well, you know, sometimes the magic works, sometimes it doesn't. And I said, where is that from? <laughs> and he said, it's from a movie called Little Big Man, starring Dustin Hoffman. And that got my wheels turning about the nature of choices that we make, from opening song to closing song, to how long we're going to let the silent prayer be silent, to um, how many songs of mine do I include, how many songs of mine do I exclude from a service, how much eye contact do I make with the congregation, how little do I make with the congregation. I have begun to realize that sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. This surprise, this awareness has borne a question that I'm really engaged in right now, which, which is, what does it mean to be responsible to the congregation and not responsible for the congregation? Got any answers? I know that something changed within me when I was aware of the question. Mm -hmm. I started to um, fixate less on how the woman in the third row is not singing at all or making any direct eye contact, and what am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong that's not working for her, and I should change my plan, and what's wrong with me? I started to let go of that and just do, well, yeah, just do my work. There's interesting confluences and differences between your experiences, you're describing it, and all kinds of responsibilities to, but not for, and sometimes for, uh, teachers to students, rabbis and cantors to congregants as well. At the Hebrew Union College, I think we're always trying to think about that, both as teachers and as people preparing teachers. I'm moved by how sensitive you are to it, so you're in good company. <laughs> we'll be searching together for, for some of those answers. I want to shift themes a bit, talk a little bit about the artistic process and uh, something that I've discovered about your mode of expression, which is 
unavoidable. Anyone who knows your music has encountered your music, and, and you and I are meeting for the first time, so this is just me engaging with you as an artist and a musician, only reinforced by the, the, the small time I've gotten to know you, but, but really stark. And it's the following, you know, those of us who are not artists or creative people, we appreciate that artists are motivated by lots of really compelling things. Sometimes you can tell that an artist is expressing in the literal sense of pushing out some emotion or sense or need that's brewing inside of them. And that feels a certain way to the person listening. And there are other times when you listen to artists and you, you see something different. You see a different kind of reason for producing, for composing, for singing. It feels like a mission. It feels like there's a goal, and, and a goal that exists outside of the artist, rather than this, this native thing that's pushing up and out. When I listen to you, I feel a lot of both. I wanted to ask you if I'm reading you right. Am, am, I, am I understanding what's, what makes Dan Nichols tick? Because we receive a lot from you. Mm -hmm. And wow. that's sort of the way I'm organizing it when I express what it is that I experience and, and, and relate to. I take that as an enormous compliment. It is. It's intended as such. Um, it's interesting that you compared the two mindsets as both artistic mindsets, which is perfectly fine and viable, reasonable. and. As you're saying it, I'm realizing that my perspective right now, and has been for many years, is a little, it's, it's a little different in that I feel like the tension I exist within is I feel I operate in two different worlds simultaneously. One is the artist space that you addressed first. And in my understanding of being a fierce artist speaking the artist's truth, it is it is incredibly self-centered. It is, I want to look at, I'm going to look at my navel today <laughs> and I'm going to say, what do I want to say about my world? It is very self-centered. And a fierce artist commits to that to a large degree and plums those depths and out comes the art. The problem with that and the community in which I work, and it's probably born because of where I grew up, not only, especially with my own mom and dad, and they're, they're, the way they chose to, taught my sister and I to value empathy as a profound endeavor. Like that was something to be sought towards. That was a beautiful vision and how to behave in the world. And then I find myself going to Goldman Union Camp where I witnessed really great staff members and especially really great song leaders. And I want to shift to song leaders now, which there's artistry and great song leading. And great song leaders have kind of this other approach that you're talking right, about. They're, they're the mission, what does the group need? Right. How do I identify and anticipate what the group's needs are? And how do I use a song or an educational moment to synthesize, crystallize that experience that they don't even know is going to be incredible for them and then bring it to them? And I feel as a song leader, I feel that other place that I work in that creates attention. And it is thinking of other first, the group's needs first. Right, it's an ex external um, location for this kind of inspiration. Yeah. So the tension is how to make choices in real time with those existing. Like I go to a camp. Maybe I've never been to that camp before. Now I happen to be an artist. Should I make sure that camp by the time I've left on the third day are, are singing all my songs or a bunch of my songs? Or should I ask the director or the, whoever's, whoever's the head song leader, whoever's the head of education, what does the group need? How do I best use the music? That tension exists with me constantly. 
it used to drive me crazy, especially in the studio when I would work with the band, because they would push back and go, just be, just create. And I'm like, we need to figure out how this is going to work in a community. I'm like, it's not about the community right now, Dan. It's about you. Right. This is an echo of the responsibility to and the responsibility yes, for. Yes, yes it is. And I have just learned to say, it's possible that I'm not going to find the answer, and that the, what exists in between is just working on working in both worlds and just accepting the tension. It's a productive tension, so it's worth. Oh, it, it's not. Uh, absolutely, it's not something to bother avoiding. You should in, in, dive right in. Yes. In observing and locating your inspiration, I can't help but notice how explicit God language is in your music, and I live in a world of thinking about thinking about Judaism and these these you know <clears throat> and when I listen to your music I don't think about thinking about thinking about Ju I, I just experience this this connection but I also know because I can't get out of my professor head I also know that a lot of Jews wig out that if, if a kind of spirituality is expressed with a certain flavor it feels un-Jewish sometimes, and it certainly can feel too emotive or touching something too. So, yeah. now I experience that in my universe. Do you, do you see that? Do you sense that? Do you feel that? Well, I've felt it in terms of feedback on certain songs I've written and have gotten reviews on, on albums and songs and things like from one reviewer, something about, I don't really like songs that have English and Hebrew in them. That just doesn't work for me. Oh. They didn't go on to why, they just kind of said, right. and now that being said, I'm going to review Dan's album. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it gets back in terms of the choices I make, if that's, if that's a question I can answer, if that's where you're going, like, well, how do I, why do I or how do I make choices to just dive in there? And how, and how do you respond to that, to that vibe, if you, if you feel it? Well, I... Years ago when I started, there was about a time in 2001 when nobody knew who I was and then 2001 it felt to me on the inside like a lot, a lot more people I ever imagined knew who I was. And in that space that, was, well, that I moved through was kind of terrifying for me personally. I started to realize that there's a limit to my uh, control over how another person sees me or my work. I have a certain degree of control over it, but I don't have complete control over it. I gotta just, I have to speak my truth. And I have to trust that. That's working for me. Indeed. And the people that are closest to me, my family, whose opinions I respect, uh, my dearest, closest friends, and my teachers, so I, we talk about this, they have reinforced that that's something to, to believe in. And you know, that little, that cute little, you know, the Hallmark greeting card, you know, about dance like no one's watching and sing like no one's listening and love mm -hmm. like you're never gonna hurt, get hurt. Right. Well, I guess I believe that completely. <laughs> I do. Well, we are all the beneficiaries of it, so keep on dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell my daughter you said that. 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 <laughs> Just as long as your daughter doesn't meet my daughter, we're fine. <laughs> so speaking of speaking your truth, I would love to ask you to get up again and sing us a song I love that is all about your truth. The fact that I happen to... Resonate with it is my business, I suppose. Yeah. But why don't we share it with uh, the world okay. and tell us a bit about it. It's called Get to Work. It's called Get to Work, and it was written Wednesday morning after the election last year. Alicia, my wife, 
Ava, my daughter, went off to school at seven in the morning, and I was in the house by myself. And I found myself for an hour pacing around the house, just really, I was a mess. And I don't think I said it out loud, but I, I just, I heard, I heard something inside of myself say, you know what you need to do is just sit down and sing, sing out your feelings. And just think, yeah, that's what you need to do, take care of yourself. So that's what I did. I sat down, I tuned up my guitar, and I sat down at the kitchen table, and I just started banging away at the song. I, I, it wasn't a song. It was only an, only an emotion. And it really, there was a, period, a good period of 20 to 30 minutes where I was just moaning out sounds with my voice <laughs> and banging on the guitar. It was like a child playing with a, with a block. It was that rudimentary and thoroughly satisfying, too. <laughs> And then I got to a place, started thinking about uh, Brian Stevenson's book called Just Mercy. And he has a, a, a feeling, a thought, more than a feeling, an idea about how we move forward as a country, which is um, that we have to get proximate. We have to get close to each other. We have to do things that make ourselves uncomfortable. We have to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable. We have to create a new narrative in this country. And we have to be fiercely connected to this idea. We have to tether ourselves to hope. If we're willing to do these four things, this is his way that we can get forward and grow as a country and as a whole people, transcend the evils uh, of what our history is with slavery and with the eradication of an indigenous people. And uh, to have those conversations is essential. New narrative, getting close, doing things that make yourself uncomfortable, and through it all, hold on to hope. And that became the backbone of the song, and then the rest came out over the course of the day. Um, over the course of the summer, I was reading a novel or a book. This, this, it's, I guess, the history of, I think the book is called Dylan Goes Electric. And I'm sorry to say I don't remember the author of the book at the moment. But in reading the book, there's moments when Dylan's talking about some of his early songs and how some of the reviews of some of his songs were not favorable. And his response to those unfavorable reviews was something similar to like, some of my songs are not supposed to be enjoyed. And I, I, I think this song I'm about to play is one of those songs. This is not a song to be enjoyed. This is Get to Work. in the country is dangerous and there's too many people saying there's no place for us it's time to get to work when the leader of the free world grabs women by the crotch and the women who voted for him feel no need for this to stop it's time to get to work When a selfish, lying racist is endorsed by the KKK And we show up to the voting booth and elect him anyway It's time to get to work Get to work Get close, get uncomfortable Get to work Tell a new story and hold on to hope Get to work Get close, get uncomfortable Get to work Tell a new story and hold on to hope. Get to work. When one 
one and three black boys will see prison one day. And a man who's black gets shot in the back because he runs away. It's time to get to work. Until black lives matter as much as white. And a woman's choice is a sacred right. It's time to get to work. Get to work. Get close, get uncomfortable. Get to work. Tell a new story and hold on to hope. Get to work. Get close, get uncomfortable. Get to work. Tell a new story and hold on to hope. Slavery has only changed. The terms are different, but the tune is the same. In a world turned upside down, emancipate us from this clown. This is our country too. Red, white, and black, and blue. Every Muslim, Christian, Jew, no bully takes that from you. Get close, get uncomfortable, get to work. Tell a new story and hold on to hope, get to work. Get close, get uncomfortable, get to work. Tell a new story and hold on to hope, get to work. Get to work. Get to work. Get to work. So, Dan, um, I'm sorry. I have to tell you. Uh, your, your goal failed because I thoroughly enjoyed the song. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It brings me to my next question. We were speaking about the sources of inspiration, the motivation for art and for yours. Mm -hmm. That song brims over with sincerity and emotion and fullness of passion. But the genre in which you work sometimes doesn't always feel that way. I think. I want to ask you if it is unfair to say, to observe, that Jewish music often runs the risk of actually feeling contrived, and that song-leading style music, you, you articulated it's our artistry, but, but we can come back to that, but that that style of music can often feel simplistic. We who experience uh, something like this, a rollicking, politicized, song that gets you moving, literally and figuratively, clearly is the opposite of what I'm saying. But we also know that there's other types of less compelling music out there. And I just want to touch base with you about, about the genre of Jewish music and, and give you a chance to defend it or, or, or maybe to, to, um, to come clean, as, you know, as it were, not necessarily personally, but in general. Is, is, is it an unfair critique? Well, is it an unfair statement to say that lots of Jewish music is what did you? What was your word? Contrived. Contrived. Hmm. I would say yes. It is an unfair question. That that may exist. I'm sure it does, because it exists everywhere. It exists in all music. A multi-billion-dollar industry is built on contrivance in pop music. If you listen to pop music today, 
I would say 80% of those songs have these same, not only formula in how the song builds and grows and ends, but um, also the chord progression that exists within. Like right now, like the, the one, six, four, five pr pr progression. I, uh, I hate that progression. Okay, well, I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so contrived. It's a, it's a, it's a. So, uh, it's an interesting question. That exists everywhere in all forms of art. And while the safe answer might be to say, well, you know, there's no judging for taste. Oh. You know, that, I mean, that's not even what I'm saying here. What I would say as it relates to Jewish music is there is an incredible opportunity to fight against that because of the depth of our history, the depth of Torah, the lessons that exist um, within a word. Like for example, something as simple as, I just learned couple of few weeks, uh, it's been a, more than several weeks now, but I spent a week at the HUC, Jewish Institute for Religion in New York at the campus, exchanging practices. It was an extraordinary week. And in that, I learned something about one Hebrew word. Which one? Well, it is that, actually, it's four Hebrew words, but it's one concept. I reversed myself here. Let me get clear. There are only four, how do I say this? Let me, let me back up. If I understood this correctly, the word for face, panim, panim, which is plural. Yes. That's fascinating and very interesting. Yes, it is. Because it's one face, but it's panim, which is plural. Yes. There are only four words in the Hebrew language that are plural for singular things. One of them is face, panim. One is water, maim. One is shemaim the heavens or the sky, and the last one is Chaim, life. There's a song in there. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm immediately, I want to work with the group and get out a big piece of butcher paper and a bunch of Sharpies and start to like sketch, like when this quadrant is Chaim and this quadrant is Shemaim and that quadrant is Maim and that, that quadrant is Panim. And let's start to talk about the intersection and the relationship there. It's a very simple idea. It's ripe with, with the thread of, contrivance everywhere, but we could, what could we do? What could we create? I would say that that's a simple idea. My point is, is there are opportunities all the time, and it takes time to go there. And if there is music that is contrived in, in Jewish music and in you know, our, our world, it's probably there's a relationship between the amount of time that was spent on creating that idea and the outcome. I am an advocate for spending lots of time with things. And that was born out of actually my own failure as a kid, as a student. I did not do school well. I mastered in C minuses <laughs> throughout. And the, the, then the feedback I got, I, w I found some old report cards from elementary school. And the report cards were really reflective on how much time I wanted to spend doing something else instead of what was in front of us with the teacher trying to lead us. And what I've learned is I, I enjoy taking time with something. I think probably what's happening is the teacher brought something up and it sparked an interest and I wanted to hang out there longer. Mm. Not that I was a bad student or dumb or, yeah, stupid. Or, or, or not, or not, it's not even born out of lack of interest. It's, it may have been actual interest in something that in the course of the class may have been a detour for the class, but for you was the focus. Yeah. And my work going forward with people of all, whether it's song leaders or with songwriters, I'm an advocate for us. Let's spend, let's spend a lot of time digging into your truth there. Well, it sounds like uh, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion was the right place for you to uh, 
articulate that. I'm, I'm pleased. <laughs> Thank you. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the bully pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So President Trump has just visited China. It's a long time coming, I think, in the American news cycle. I think we know this about our relationship with China, that there are many, many trade issues and all kinds of tensions that we, we know about. And one of them is, is about copyright infringement. It turns out that because of the nature of CDs and digital content and what have you, that China and pirating in China is, uh, is a, of major consequence. And it sparked in me a, a particular curiosity about, frankly, your business model. The reason I asked this is because I had to negotiate a contract with Debbie Friedman when she became an instructor at the Hebrew Union College. It awoke in me an appreciation of um, all of these dynamics, and I never thought about how any musician, but specifically a Jewish musician, and you, you succeed when your music is being used royalty-free all the time. That's one, one measure of success for you. And that's not, gonna, that's not gonna cut it if you have to make a living. So it seems to me that there must be all kinds of issues, both theoretical and ethical, about ownership of an idea, in this case music, and practical about how copyright, how royalties work for, for Jewish musicians. So if you could share some of that with me, I would, I would feel uh, enlightened. It's, so, it's such a curious thing. I'd like to start with the practical and then move Great. to theoretical. Great. Practically speaking, I realized a long time ago, right when I was coming out, really, uh, 2000, I started the, my first group, this band, 18 and 1996. But when things started to happen for us was around the year 2000, meaning that people were calling to have us come. We weren't calling them. I just, I, I created a business model which was, um, we're not going to be dependent on sale of product to be able to make a living. Well, let's do it some other way. And that's been through touring. touring. And there's a reason that I'm out 190 days a year mm. as a result. I think if I could find a way that worked for me, that made me comfortable, that had integrity with what I'm wanting in this work, where I could um, make more from sale of CDs, from royalties of use, so that I could travel 120 days a year, I would do that. Mm. And I haven't figured out how to do that yet, that it doesn't kind of steal something from my sense of how I want to do this work, which is really rooted in relationship. And, and the live performance, evidently. Uh, it's yeah. Well, even the, the word performance is a crude way of expressing what I'm going for, which is to build relationships with other people in, through song. That's what Jewish Camp did for me. It reached right into my heart and said, this is how we exist in this world, and this is how we're Jewish. And I want that. I've wanted that since I was nine years old at the back of the Ulam for Havdalah service mm. with Lee Friedman and Don Cincinnatus and Ian Silver, Jim Bennett singing and playing guitar. I was transported 
and it was I was wrapped up in a sense of safety and belonging that I'd never felt before. And I, I had an emotional decision way back then. I want to do that. I want to be connected to that. And so the live aspect of touring, of being on 190 days a year, gives me that opportunity more times than not to connect with other human beings in song. To create some of that space. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. And theoretically now, about ownership and concepts, and this is my idea, what happens when another person takes a song and does it completely differently. There are a lot of Jewish artists that feel very uh, connected to the idea of, this is how I wrote it, this is how you should sing it. We'll even stop in the middle of a, a performance that the hero group's singing it differently, and we'll say, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing it this way. That's not my taste. My opinion is simply born down to this. If you decide you want to do one of my songs in this way, it ceases to entirely be mine. You have showed me that you want to make it, you want to make it yours. Mm. That's a gift to me. And so to me, the graceful thing to do is to say, well, bavakasha, uh, <laughs> enjoy it, make it yours. I'm not interested, I just don't have the energy, quite honestly, too, to get involved with managing how you're gonna sing my song. Right, right. Have you been present when someone has covered you and blown you away, just made you feel like they actually didn't just own the song the way you're so generously encouraging people to do, but they actually made it something even better? Yes, that happens to me all the time when I visit summer camps <laughs> around the country. You know, it does, and it's, humbling and beautiful and holy, gives me a sense of place, sense of purpose. That must be terribly gratifying. It is. It's extraordinary. I mean, those are the, when those moments happen, when I come home and I sit with Alicia, my wife, late at night and talk about what just happened, these are the kinds of things that I say, and you won't believe what happened. This is how I get to work in the world. And um, you know, my mom and dad taught me to value that, that somebody else paying attention to you is something really important. I suppose that some might sound a little sappy as I'm saying it. I don't know. I mean, you know, on one hand I'm very hopeful, on the other hand I'm, you know, very cynical all at the same time. I choose to believe that that is, you know, this idea of who is the one who's wealthy, the one who's happy with what they have. Mm -hmm. This is enough for me. This is absolutely dieno. This is good. I am rich and full. That's enough. I'm going to ask you a double question now. You're a person who evidently is so generous-spirited. It comes through in your music. You're sharing with me now. The fact that you've joined us and given us the gift of your time and your music is really just, it's a machai, as we say. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, enlivening of our experience. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And that willingness also makes us want to get to know you better. And part of getting to know someone is knowing their pain. Would you be willing to share with us a low point in your career, something that uh, reveals a trouble, a difficulty that tells us about you? Oh, sure. It was probably eight years ago now. I was visiting one of the Union camps, and I had had a wonderful three-day, four-day visit. I mean, it was good. It was great. And we culminated the experience with a concert. They asked me to give a concert. It was a solo concert. I was not in with my band, but uh, I spent the days leading up to the concert inviting folks, campers and staff alike, to join me and be, we'll be the band together. We'll create the set together. And so that was the concert that night for the entire camp. It went great. It went so great that when it was done, the camp screamed encore. Now, that doesn't happen to me so often. And so that was thrilling. And I checked in with the camp director and, and it was affirmed, yes, we want you to do one more. 
And so I made this decision based on a story I had told the, the sum, that summer at previous other camps I had been. So I tried out this story. It was deeply personal to me and real and had purpose and meaning. I decided, okay, they've asked for an encore and I made a decision in that moment, I'm gonna do that story. And it's a story in song. It's an experience. It's based on an experience I had when I was nine years old at Goldman Union Camp, brand new to Judaism, and this man comes into camp to do a program for the camp. It was a weird one. We were standing in a room holding onto a rope, mm. and this man had a little... <laughs> so someone has been there before. And there's a woman with him in the middle of the circle, and she's very tall and slender, and she's dancing interpretive dance with scarves, bright colored scarves. She's dancing. We're all standing in a circle holding onto a rope, and he's singing a song, walking, pacing around the circle, singing to us, getting very close and saying, repeat after me. And it was, it would have been terrifying had it not been from looking at the counselors next to me, and they're just following along with us. So I figured this is what it means to be Jewish in this moment. <laughs> It was a bizarre, bizarre moment in my Jewish childhood. I'm glad I for, you recovered. I forgot all about it. I like, st I mean, I, I suppressed the memory for years. <laughs> and then I was getting ready for that summer's tour to, to camps, and Alicia and Ava were off and away. I was at the house by myself, and I was um, getting anxious about going away for the summer. And I was, perf I, then I was doing mind games, like, why are you getting anxious? You love summer camping, you should be happy, you should be singing songs. And then I started singing the song that this man sang for me 30 years earlier. Out of the, out of the, the, the clear blue sky, I start singing, I will do what I can, <laughs> I will do what I can, everything is connected, everything <laughs> is connected, it will work out all. That's the song. <laughs> the man was Bonya Shore, and his wife was Fanshawn Shore, and their kids went to Gucci, and they were coming to do an experiential program of singing with our camp when I was nine years old. So I'm now, 30 years later, singing a song to myself, and it's lifting me out of my anxiety. It's bringing me joy, and I'm realizing as I'm singing that some songs take 30 years <laughs> to get. Like, this is, this is a great story. I'm packing that one in my back pocket. If I get a chance to tell that story, I'm telling it. So the, over the course of that summer, I told that story with a harmonium. I had a harmonium travel with that summer, and I made it as weird as I possibly could <laughs> to try to recreate the sense of confusion that I had as a nine-year-old. And the goal was to be weird and share the story all along. So I, at this camp, now going back to the, this moment, it's encore, and I'm like, I made the call. I'm gonna do that story. They're saying they want one more. I'm gonna give them one more, because I love this story, and it's a doozy. So I told the story. It's a 12-minute story. <laughs> and uh, as clearly this one is right now. <laughs> Point of it is, I did it. It felt great. It felt like the front of the room was with me. I couldn't see the back of the room. I was satisfied. It felt like I was on target speaking my truth. The point of it is sometimes, this is one of the reasons we sing. Sometimes we don't even know why we're singing a song. Sometimes it takes 30 years to the message, for the message to get in and song can still bring us out of darkness and sadness. And here we are, and thank you. A year later, I got a call from someone who worked at the camp saying, we want to have you back, but I don't know how to tell you this, but yeah, um, please don't ever do that story again <laughs> at our camp. And I went, what? Yeah, it was too weird for us. 
too weird. It made us really uncomfortable. Why didn't you tell me then? Didn't really know how to tell you. <laughs> but we're telling you now. We'd like to have you back, but we want to make sure you don't tell that story because it's too weird. Like, okay, that really unnerved me, unnerved me. A year later, the director of the camp called me and said, um, I'm a supporter of you, would love to have you back to camp, but I have to tell you, that thing was so weird that you did that night. It's made me question everything that you do. Oh my God. I felt like you hijacked the entire camp for 12 minutes that night. And I felt like you made it all about you and not about us. And the whole week was so great, the concert was great, and then you just totally made it horrible. And it makes me question what you value in this work, and I don't know if I can have you back to camp. Wow. I know what my target was, and I missed my target for enough people in the room for them to think that I was taking advantage of them. And I can't change that impression. That's their truth, and it's heartbreaking, mm. because that's their reality. Best I can think was that my sound system wasn't strong enough, and the back of the room heard for 12 minutes. <laughs> they never got the joke, because they were in the back of the room, I guess. But um, that still sticks in me as profound um, professional failure that I don't know how to redeem. Mm. Well, we can't end on that note. <laughs> we could. We could. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, we're not. And I'm going to ask you the flip side now and tell me one of your soaring heights. When I was in high school, Senior year, my dad said, hey, there's this school that trains rabbis and canners in New York. I'm going to New York for work. Why don't you come with me? I called them. They've got this thing on Wednesday or Thursday where we can come and go to services and they have like bagels and cream cheese afterwards and you can hang out and meet some of these rabbis and canters. How about you come? You want to come with me? Of course. So my dad and I went to New York. And we sat in on services, and we had the bagels and cream cheese, and it was great. I'm with my dad. I, wore, I, remember, I remember the tie I wore. It was just like it was a great moment for my dad and I. And after that was over, one of the cantorial students said, can I give you a tour of the school? Like, that's fantastic. I'd love it. So we're walking around the building, and she's showing me the library. It's this beautiful, massive library. She's walking me up and down through the whole building. And at some point, she says, well, what are you, like, how are you into Jewish music? What's going on? You're a senior in high school. What do you want? Where you come from? So I said, well, I'm, I'm hoping to get in the University of North Carolina to study, to study music. And uh, I'm a camp kid. I grew up at Goldman Union Camp. And I love camping. And I'm an aspiring song leader. And I, I must have delayed at some point. She interrupted. She said, listen, I mean, you, you should understand that this is a serious music school. We do serious music here. And there, this song leading thing, you're not, we're not doing that here. That's not what we do here. Okay, you need to understand that. Now I was 18, maybe seven, I was 17 years old, so I was like, okay, that's what we do here, okay? I didn't know anything. Five years later, I'm finishing up at Carolina. At this point, I'm singing opera professionally a little bit. I'm teaching voice to non-majors at Carolina. I'm fronting with my band, the rock band, the Olskis. I haven't yet started writing Jewish music, but I'm doing some song leading on the Bema at Temple Beth Orr in Raleigh, North Carolina. Jim Blyberg was the rabbi at the time. He's the one that brought me up there to start song leading with, with synagogue, with our synagogue. I thought, you know, it's been five years. Maybe I should go back up there and check it out. So I called on my own and went up there on my own and went to the Thursday service, or I think it's Thursday, and then had the bagels and cream cheese and just checking out the vibe. 
And another cantorial student said, hey, would you like to um, go on a tour? I'd love it. So she takes me on a tour. We'll walk around the building. She asked me the question. This is another person five years later. What, what brings you here? So I tell her my story. I tell her about studying with Stafford Wing at Carolina. I talk about singing opera professionally. I'm exploring that. I'm teaching voice. And I go to camp, and I song lead at camp, and she interrupts and says, listen, you need to understand. <laughs> this is a conservatory. We do serious music here. I'm not playing guitar here. You're not singing camp songs here. This is serious. Do you understand? And at this point, I'd had a little information. And I said, I, yeah, I understand. I just think that there's a really cool uh, relationship between the cantorial voice and the congregational voice, and I think there's a really wonderful dynamic to, to be explored there. And she said, that's not what we're going to do here. You need to know that before you come here. That's not what we're going to do. And I went, huh, all right. 20 years later, Cantor Richard Cohen calls me and says, I want you to come to our school and share with us your practice, how you do your work. And so this last fall, I spent a week at HUC in New York, attending class, trying to repeat back to a, a cousin that teaches there how to, how to do a line. I got a chance to share my practice, lead services, talk about the nature of congregational voice and the relationship of guitar and song leading in terms of prayer and practice. And for me, that feels like it's not success particularly, but profoundly meaningful shift in our Jewish world, in the reform movement, in HUC, it feels, I guess it does feel like an accomplishment that I have been able to work for 20 years to develop something that HUC finds of value and wants to share in is, um, well, let me just say, the first person I called was my mom and dad. <laughs> so you will not believe what just happened. I am at a place in my life right now, 48 years old, and I'm 20 years into a career, and I'm just feeling like I have so much connect, so many connections to so many people and so many communities and congregations all over North America and camps, and to be asked by the school uh, that I visited twice and didn't quite understand that they wanted me to be there to share my philosophy, my experience, is deep and humbling and uh, incredibly satisfying. And that that feels like a story. I guess that feels like a story of success for me. Well, that we should be the Hebrew New College should be part of your uh, story of success is pretty satisfying for me. And if you should apply, I know a guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So now mm. we're gonna open it up for questions. I think I'd like the questions first, and then we're gonna close out with a song of yours. But let's let's get some questions from the audience. Uh, we're arranging for the uh, <laughs> microphone to come up. So I'm going to ask you to make sure you use the microphone because this is all being recorded for the podcast. You can come up. It's like a revival. You come up and you... <laughs> <laughs> mm. So who would like to come up? Please come up and uh, ask a question. There we go. And tell us your name, please. Hi, I'm Samara Leader. One thing that's always struck me um, in my interactions with you that I found so admirable is your commitment to authenticity and your ability to really be present in whatever moment you're in, which comes through in your music, but also comes through in one-on-one -on -one interactions. How do you stay so authentic and strive to stay so present when I think in today's society? Those are two characteristics that are really challenging for a lot of people. Thank you for asking that question. 
the thing that first comes up for me is around 2000 when it felt for me emotionally like it was an overnight all of a sudden people are interested in what I'm offering with with Jewish music and there was a pot there was a, a swell of popularity that scared me and I was struggling with how to manage that I was recommended a book by Rabbi Harold Kushner called Living a Life That Matters and there's a chapter in there on greatness that caught my attention and it was this concept of not all, what do you do if you're not going to be able to create, find a cure for cancer? And how do you balance your life with having meaning and purpose? And he uses a, he, I think at the, in the book he quotes um, Mother Teresa as having said it. I've since heard that maybe she's not the one who first said it. But it hit that moment when I read this, it turned things for me. Not all of us are capable, uh, capable of doing great things but all of us are capable of doing little things with great love. And I remember speaking out to the book out loud at home saying, I can do that. I want to do that. I'm doing that. So this idea about paying attention to people, being attentive to people, to me is that act, that's behavior of little thing with big love. I have learned over the course of the years how much it matters to a person that I remember their name or that I really lock in on their eyes. So now it's, it's foundational to all of what I do. Thank you. Aaron Boxed, um, I, I want to make a statement and I just want to hear you respond to it. When I was growing up as a kid, everyone knew Debbie Friedman. She was the, the dean of, of camp music and Jewish music and everyone sang her songs. I now have an almost 12-year-old daughter and when I ask her, obviously she has no idea who Debbie Friedman is. That's partially my, my fault. I say Debbie Friedman Jewish music. She says no, Dan Nichols Jewish music. So as the, the, the mantle of sort of the dean of Jewish rock slash camp music has passed from people that were important in my childhood to now people like you who are important in my children's childhood, how does that feel or, or sit with you? Uh, I, don't care to th I don't care to think about that at all. For me personally, that is a, a uh, I haven't thought this through, Aaron. But I'll, I will just take a risk of being totally vulnerable and sincere with you in the moment of what I'm reacting to. It's not, I don't, I don't want to spend any time thinking about that. I would much rather think about learning somebody's name, being present in this moment, not thinking about what I mean to the movement. To me, that, that feels dangerous and a poor use of my resources emotionally. That's how I feel. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Ben Mazur. Uh, Dan, you spoke a little bit about you want people to take your music and make the, make it your their own. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the use of shtick in music. Um, I've seen you through the years react differently. You've you've welcomed it in some moments and kind of even not verbally sometimes with your face have said now's not the time for that kind of moments as well. And I think about at camp um, and at Nifty events is you know when we try to do especially more softer flowing things and kids really want to just shout back and, and drive it. Um, where's the line between trying to set a tone and letting the crowd make it what they want it to be? Thank you for the question, Ben. I think that's a choice for every, every leader of the community. Every song leader has to come to their own terms with what their thresholds or what their desires are in terms of those things. I would say, I'll back up and say, I have a philosophy of where shtick comes from. And this doesn't make it right. It's just, it's, a, it's my idea. I think shtick comes from the, the moments that we do the most. And it's born out of the human, the natural human desire to create. For example, 
If we remove the religious construct of prayer from a, a singing moment that lots of camps have, it's called the Birkat Hamazon, the blessing after the meal. It's about eight minutes long, maybe it's five minutes long, and it just feels like eight. <laughs> but it's a long sung blessing, thanking God for the fullness that we're enjoying at this table, and even references the holiness and sacredness of Israel, and the troubles that our Jewish people have had over, over centuries. So there's this ark. Now we sing it at most camps three times a day, and uh, at every meal. To me, the, the singing moment on a camp that has the most shtick is the Birkat Hamazon. And it's my belief it's because we do it three times a day. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it three times a day. What I'm saying is there is an inherent desire by human beings to create, to fill in the space in between. You know, nature knows no vacuum. Is that the saying? We want to put something in there of our own. And so the things that we sing the most, those songs get to have to put the most in there. I, I've experienced it with my own songs. It all depends on the moment you're trying to create. I don't think the shtick is inherently bad. It depends on the moment, the mood that you're trying to create. Sometimes the shtick is great, depending on the, the moment that you're trying to create. I used to drive shtick hard as a way, when I was a younger song leader, as a way to get the group's attention and bring them in. And as I became more skilled at my craft, I came up with other methods to draw them in. It's a tool, just like anything, that can be used to bring joy and also to get in the way of a beautiful moment. That's my feeling about Shtick. Joel Swedlov. I think a lot about the songwriting process with different artists. I, I think of Malcolm Gladwell in his podcast talked about Leonard Cohen writing Hallelujah and taking years and years and years and never feeling that he got the song right. So I'm curious for you, with 11 studio albums and, and a sound that is Dan Nichols today versus Dan Nichols in 1996 are not the same in any way, I, I think you would say, but specifically lyrically, uh, tonally, the, the chord structure you use. If, if you could now take any of song from your catalog and take another crack at it, what song would you pick? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a, it is a great question, and the thing is that there's such a huge collection of songs that come to my mind. Wow. Top five would be okay. <laughs> There's a song on, on an album called My Heart is in the East, and uh, the song's called It Was You. I was in love with the concept of what I wanted to do with the song, and I, I let go of it before it really, it achieved what I thought it could. I, 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 and the way I let go is with the, the way I fashioned the lyric. I gave up, so I talked about earlier about spending time with something. I gave up and just let certain phrases rhyme that weren't really weren't speaking a truth. They just were neat and tidy and rhymed. And I love the concept of that song still, and I have regret looking back on it, because I feel like I took a swing at that, and I, I got close, but I didn't really hit at the center of what I was trying to say, because I got enamored with making the lines rhyme, neat and tidy. That's one that comes to my mind right off the bat. That's a cool question. Thank you. Hi, Cheryl Cohen. I don't have a question, but I have a comment. I just want to say thank you for being such an incredible role model for all the song leaders who attend camp, and as a teacher for all my students who come back and say my favorite thing at camp was when Dan was there. So thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Julie Bressler. 
So Dan, when I've seen you perform at camp or any other program, something I always am impressed by is that a group of particularly teenagers who will be totally unengaged before you get up on stage will all of a sudden be singing their hearts out at the top of their lungs. And so in an era where we are constantly trying to find new ways to engage that generation, I'd love to hear some of the things you do that are so effective with that age group. Oh, I, well, I appreciate that. I, to me, it's the work that happens not at the microphone in the concert and not with the D chord and not arranging the set list, but what happens, actually, it's not, it's not with the guitar and it's not with the song. It happens when I'm walking down the hill from the boys' area, boys' row, down to the, down to the Chadarochel, down to the dining hall, and me seeing a boy that I don't know and saying, hey, what's your name? I'm saying, I'm Ruben. Hey, what's, and then talking with Ruben on the way down there and then finding him the next day and saying, your name, Ruben, right? Yeah, how'd you remember that? Well, I wrote it down. <laughs> you did, that's weird. I know, but I want to remember you. I know that people like being remembered. And one by one, over the, in the case of some camps, I'm there for two weeks, so I have time to work that, to really get to know people. And so I'm building a relationship. And so that when I stand up on that stage or that bima and we, and we start singing, he's not just that guy. We've started to know each other. And that guy knows my name. And we played Ultimate Frisbee together. Or that counselor who is there, he helped me cover at the pool when I was on a night off. And he helped me. Now, that's not my job description. I'm a song leader. What am I doing covering at the pool? Because that's, that's community. That's being in relationship with other human beings. It's like being present, being available. And my mom and dad taught me to, to do that. And Ron Klotz, the director of Goldman Union Camp, taught me to do that. And then in working that out, I saw, did, I saw very clearly how much that mattered to people and how I enjoyed giving that. And how really, for me, it just feels so easy to do, so fundamental. So now I'm hungry for it. And now I, I pursue it. And I, I, that's my reason why those, when it does happen, and the magic all, doesn't always work, those teens don't always spontaneously sing with me. Sometimes, like, this guy makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I get that a lot. When they do, it's, I think it's because I've done the work with the guitar down and built relationships one person at a time. Thank you. I think we're going to wrap up and ask you to take us out with the song. And since you've been speaking so eloquently about the way relationships are really at the heart of what you're doing, I think it's apt that the song we're going to say goodbye with is called Love is Love. Yeah. Thank you. I was in Cincinnati, Ohio last spring at the Valley Temple in Wyoming, Ohio. And I was doing a little coffee house on Saturday night for adults. And afterwards, a woman walked up to me. She must have heard me sing the Harry Chapin song that night called Flowers Are Red. <laughs> and there's a line in there about so many colors in a rainbow, so many colors in the morning sun. And she came up to me after the, the coffee house and said, she came right up to me. I did not know this woman. And she said, no, I uh, want you to know that I have rainbows in my eyes. So I repeated it back to her, because it kind of freaked me out. <laughs> it sounded like you said you have rainbows in your eyes. She said, yeah. I said, I, I must have had a look that I didn't understand what she was talking about. And she said, you see, I had, I had surgery on my eyes. And after the surgery, now when any bright light comes into my eyes, I see rainbows. Wouldn't that be great if we all had rainbows in our eyes? 
I couldn't get that woman's comment out of my head. And I thought there could be a song there. And I was thinking about the Hebrew blessing for seeing a rainbow. And I was thinking, I identify as hetero male. Could I, as hetero male, write a song in solidarity with those in the uh, LGBTQ community? Could I do that? How would I do that? And this is, this is that. This is me trying to bring those things together. That um, uh, I, I just, I believe every word of this song. This is, I'm laying out there how I feel about the wor world and about love and about people. Multiplies when love is love is love is love is love is love is love. Love is love is love is love is love. Love is love is love is love is love is love is love. Love is love is love is love is love. There is a light shining through us. We are kaleidoscopes of hope. Helps us all to see what love can truly be. A gift to set us free, pure and holy. And I see you right beside me. There's never been another one like you. Do you see me right beside you? Holding on to this spinning arc of green and blue Where love is love is love is love is love is love is love Love is love is love is love is love Love is love is love is love is love is love is love Love is love is love is love is love Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Zohar HaBrit V'Neman Bivrito V'Kayam V'Mamaro Faithful love and light never dimming In the end and in the beginning Faithful love and light never dimming 
when love is love is love is love is love is love is love love is love is love is love is love love is love is love is love is love is love is love love is love is love is love is love whatever you are whatever i am we are more than woman or man Dan Mitchell Thank you Thank you so much You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.